0: Exit for Podcasts is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For more podcasts about movies, nostalgia, and pop culture, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. I hope that you
1: Hey everybody and welcome back to Uncanny X's for Podcast, the show where we take a look at the Uncanny X-Men comic book franchise, starting with Giant Size X-Men number one and make our way forward through the misadventures of Marvel's Merry Mutants. It is a sad day here at Grey Malkin Lane. Tragically, Jean Grey has perished, sacrificing herself to end the great conflict of the Dark Phoenix saga. With me, as always, to discuss these dreadful, depressing matters is my Uncanny co-host, Jonah. Hey, Jonah.
0: Hey, Nico, and hello, everyone.
1: This is one of those situations where it's such a sad story, but it's so good and it was so great, and I really enjoyed having an opportunity to discuss it with you and Kyle and Kevo while Kevo's title didn't really directly connect in any way. It was such a significant moment in the Marvel Universe that I felt it took everybody's perspective to discuss it. As mentioned, we're also going to be covering the adaptations of the Phoenix Saga over on phoenix.html, so you'll be able to hear Kevo have more opinions on Phoenix there. Jonah, we've spent so long developing these characters and learning to love them and watching them grow. When we first started Giant Size X-Men, they told you that Jean was leaving, and then she became the star of the show. 40 issues in... Where's your head at? We just lost Jean. Talk to me about your reactions to the Dark Phoenix saga.
0: With Giant Size X-Men number one, we had so many X-Men that we joked that there are too many X-Men. What are you going to do with them? And then half of them leave, but not really. Everyone else is still kind of there, but not really. Jean was one of those characters that didn't really do much, and I don't know if they had a plan for her. And when Chris Claremont took over, he had Havoc Polaris and Jean, and Havoc Polaris really didn't want to do anything with the X Men. That doesn't make sense with our characterization. But Jean didn't really leave. When we were talking about the X Men, we always we also talked about favoritism and who got a lot of dialogue characterization power all that Jean was very special and sometimes people have the reaction of what makes him special and part of that is Chris Claremont wanted it to be that way he chose Jean to be the Phoenix he chose her it could have been anyone but I think it makes the most sense that it's her when we did see Jean she did still seem pretty connected and wanting to be involved with the X-Men but didn't really know what to do because she also wanted to be herself and her own woman and then she was given this identity of the Phoenix the literal embodiment of the passion to live and life. And I thought that was so interesting and it was really beautiful to see Jean grow as a character and as a powerhouse as one of Marvel's most powerful mutants and heroes. It's really sad but I also think her death is justified. We can now have so much more characterization and so much more growth of everybody else around her because when you have such a powerhouse of a character like Jean you can only attune things to her. You have to make things fair on her level which is why we got someone as so powerful as Proteus. You know, he stood toe-to-toe with Jean, and it was a really epic fight when we went through that arc. But now that Gene's gone, we can face slightly weaker villains and have everyone else have their chance to be the spotlight, and we, we get to see how the death of Gene affects everyone and what life after Gene is like.
1: One of the things that's interesting is you say that without Gene, the X-Men's villains need to become less powerful. More like the X-Men need to figure out more clever ways to defeat them without their most powerful member flying in and just blasting everyone away. Though it is interesting to note that Phoenix has been off the grid for the X-Men for some time. While she was a major turning point in the Proteus saga and against the Hellfire Club, Jean did find herself a resident of Muir Island for a considerable period of time. I can't think of any other way to summarize the post-Jean era as life after Jean. It really is a period in which the X-Men are so obsessed with her. Even when she's not in it, the book still seems to revolve around her in a way that's inescapable while we are going to change protagonists in the form of kitty pride first we need to close out the dark phoenix saga as a whole over the years chris claremont and marvel attempted to recreate the magic that the dark phoenix saga represents they would go on to include a number of backup stories in x-men classic fitting into the dark phoenix saga these classic stories are classic 34 by ann nesenti and john bolton Classic 35 by Daryl Edelman and John Bolton, and Classic 39 by Anna Nesenti and Jim Lee. Classic 36 by Fabian Nicieza and Mark Bright, Classic 40 by Tom Orzakowski, and Classic 43 by Chris Claremont and Mike Collin. What's interesting is these are collected in an unusual way. 34, 35, and 39 partner with issue 129, 36 and 40 partner with 131, and Classic 43 acts as an epilogue to issue 137. We're also going to be taking a look at Phoenix, the untold story, which was a one shot released by Marvel in an attempt to make the return of Phoenix in the mid eighties, as big a deal as they could. This featured the original unaltered ending to the Phoenix saga in which Jean did not really pay any kind of real price for her crimes. In addition, It also included a number of interviews and notes from editorial at the time, back and forth, in something called The Phoenix Tapes. We also get a really interesting pinup that had been created for issue 139, Should Gene Had Survived. We're going to get to all that in a little bit, but Jonah, there was something we talked about a lot in our notes that I couldn't help but notice. We kept commenting that so many of these stories did nothing for the Dark Phoenix
0: Saga as a whole. No, you would think if they're trying to collect stories and fill in gaps and try to be um, as cohesive as possible, a lot of these stories don't fit in or are largely removable from the main narrative itself. I'm not sure if they were limited on time storytelling depending on who is the editor-in-chief at the time there's so many factors that could go into it that we just don't personally know but it's really interesting to see what ideas they went with and what they think should be collected with this something we're going to do is after we talk about each issue is say whether or not we actually think it should be collected if you really need to collect it with it if your dream is to have everything dark phoenix related
1: we actually have already taken care of removing some of that for you guys we talked about The Cyclops issues of X-Men Classic that came during this time separately in a previous episode. We're going to be discussing the Dazzler Classics later on with Kyle when we kick things off for Dazzler and the Defenders. Well, I can't think of anything left to do, but send things over to Jonah so he can tell us about the contents of these issues.
0: Classic X-Men number 34. Emma plays psychic chess with Jason and talks about sexism. Classic X-Men number 35. Kitty goes to a psychedelic cancer team to figure out her powers. Classic X-Men number 39. Storm encounters a nice guy mutant who causes unnecessary melodrama between her and Wolverine. Classic X-Men number 36. Sean and Mara fight as Mara tries to play God by reanimating her dead son to atone for her sin. Classic X-Men number 40. Nightcrawler takes interest in a breakdancer and learns about the different walks of life. Classic X-Men number 43. Jean meets with death and talks over her destiny as the phoenix. So let's kick things off with that
1: 129 sweet Classic X-Men 34 bothered me in a lot of ways, but didn't. I don't know how to talk about this one. but it was really beautiful looking. This issue follows a young waitress at the Hellfire Club, who we should not assume is Sebastian Shaw's assistant, Tessa, who will go on to be more significant down the line. I guess she's just some random waitress. And she comes across Emma, and she's like, Ugh, Jason was so rude to me. And Emma's like,
0: Ah, don't talk to me, I'm the White Queen!
1: And... The waitress is like, uh, we're both whores, bitch. And Emma's like, shut your mouth! And it's really interesting because Emma is kind of like, do not mistake me for a whore. I am a queen and sexism only exists if you let it. Okay, I'm glad a woman wrote this because if a woman chooses to say that as a man, I have no right to say anything. But if a man had written it, I would have had some shit to say.
0: I absolutely agree. It's kind of like, Emma is the matron at a brothel as opposed to an actual worker there. She's still dressed very scandalous, very beautiful. And there is a point to what she says of owning her sexuality to get what she wants. She's using her necessary tools to get to her goals. And we learn from this issue, she wants to own the Hellfire Club. She's making a move to to oust Jason. Maybe beknownst to him, maybe not. But they go through this psychic chess battle. And I think if we're going to take anything from this issue, it was probably one of the more cooler things that they did. And one of the most interesting things. I'm going to give credit to Marvel. They have really interesting psychic battles in x-men there are 50 billion different mutants that are psychics but they'll get to have really cool fights and something that i just really appreciated was learning more about emma we're still not at the emma that i love and know when she's a hero and she's much more nuanced and dynamic but we see here that she's willing to do whatever she wants to get what she wants and i think that's pretty great she's really smart and it's not something I would think you got from her first introduction. So I think in that sense of learning about Emma, we got greatness there. What she said, however, about women and sexism, mm-hmm.
1: I really enjoy something you pointed out, that this is the first time we get a real sense of Emma's depth. I know that we commented in the first episode of Dark Phoenix Saga that Emma is introduced and becomes Kitty's teacher in a span of like eight panels. And it's a little too fast, and it's kind of underwhelming. It takes away some of what makes her interesting, which are the levels and nuances that make Emma Frost the White Queen and a headmistress who loves her students, and a competent businesswoman who is capable of leading an enterprise. This is the first time we really get that. Now, I love the chess stuff. One of the things we've commented on is John Bolton has a really fantastic sense of how to blend styles of art. There's something very, almost, British Invasion DC Vertigo, which was going on right around the same time, about the art here, yet he still manages to have his fantastically cartoony eyes in the page with the giant knight attacking. The art looks really different and really special and interesting and it draws me in but i would also say that that's part of the weakness of including this story with the dark phoenix saga visually it's lovely but i don't know that it fits with the dark phoenix saga and i don't know that in the dark phoenix saga as it exists there's room for an aside about emma a random waitress and jason I'm going to have
0: to give this one
1: no, but pretty close to a yes on inclusion.
0: Absolutely agree. I think you were completely right and that this is a no, but almost there. And I think that's just part of because you're just very right. There isn't enough room in what we need in the Dark Phoenix saga and Apocrypha to have a story about the characterization of Emma Frost, Jason, and a woman that we don't care about. It's not. It's not really necessary here. It's a Decent enough story with beautiful art, but for the overall narrative of what we want from a Dark Phoenix saga and things leading up to and after, and during, I don't think it fits and it's not quite that necessary. It does feel out of place, and maybe
1: even a little bit melodramatic. The waitress's final monologue that closes out the story is, I may be more vulnerable, but the true victim here is that white queen. At least I know one thing, to quit before the game has started is the only way to leave this hellfire club alive. Okay. So because she dies in the Dark Phoenix saga, seemingly, I get that that's supposed to be powerful and dynamic, but at the same time, it just feels a little
0: like over the top. I agree. I mean, that's just part of just Emma. Emma is really dramatic and over the top at times. So great, but still doesn't fit. It doesn't fit. So that's going to be a note from
1: both of us on that one. And I'm going to start off with this next issue, Classic 35, was written by the assistant editor on the title at the time. So I'm not completely surprised that the storytelling didn't work for me. This guy was not normally a writer of these short stories. I felt that one of the things that lost me the hardest was the art on this one. Once again, it's John Bolton, the normal artist on the story. But some of it is so abstract. I enjoyed that Emma Frost in the story was like a living nightmare. But in this, we're treated to Kitty Pride having what amounts to hallucinations, an actual nightmare in which Emma is made to look so dramatically evil. And it's very
0: she's trapped in her dream world. It just didn't do anything for me. I agree. And it also comes across that the writer didn't know how to write Kitty Pride. Well, we don't have a lot of Kitty Pride just yet. We're going to get into a lot more of her in the upcoming episodes that we talk about her starting as an X-Man. But one thing that we can tell you about Kitty Pride is academically, Kitty is very smart. She is a child prodigy when it comes to a lot of the sciences and is really academically gifted. What this ultimately amounts to is Kitty figuring out what her power set is. And if you're trying to tell me that an academic genius could not figure out through her entire time that she can phase through things, you do not know the character at all and maybe you should have stayed away from it
1: it is one of those problems with 80s comics at times it's this sort of like how did that happen sort of small world idea of things kitty falls through the floor and lands in the living room and she's like how'd that happen and then she goes through a wall and she's like how'd that happen and i understand that it's completely realistic that someone who believes themselves unfantastic would try to find other explanations, wouldn't necessarily buy into the fact that maybe they are a mutant, but you get there a couple of steps ahead of the narrator, so it's a little frustrating. And I appreciate getting more Kitty pride. I love Kitty, and I love getting a backup story set during her time in the Dark Phoenix saga. But I perhaps would have enjoyed a more active story of Kitty, as opposed to one where she has a nightmare about being active and then decides to do something positive. There was a lot of room to tell stories in here about Kitty and
0: her early time in the X-Men, and this just wasn't the one I was looking for. I absolutely agree, and something I'd be gonna to say to this is I don't think this is necessary. This story doesn't make a lot of sense as to what Kitty's going through, how why Kitty visualizes this specifically. We don't even know that Kitty's a dancer yet, including these weird, correct details when we don't know them yet and Having the story not flow the way you want with really... No, well, art's not bad, but when you take abstract art, I think your story really has to match it because you're already going so out there with non-conventional art, your story has to really be up there and really good. And I didn't get that. If someone just handed this to me and said, this is about Kitty Pride, I maybe not want to read more about her because I don't understand any of this.
1: It is a pretty out there story and it doesn't make sense on its own It requires Uncanny 129 and 130 to make sense, and even then, I feel like it does rest on details that come later, so even if the defense is that the story was trying to tell Kitty at that time based on what we knew about her, it's still too limited a vantage point. I'm going to agree with Jonah on this one. I don't think this story is necessary at all. Ultimately, I think it detracts from the Dark Phoenix saga in a way that leaves me wondering why it was published with its classics. I would probably maybe put these two together in some kind of vignettes. I know that Marvel at one point did release a number of the classic stories in a trade called vignettes, and it wouldn't surprise me to see some of these turn up in an expanded Dark Phoenix collection. But really, 34 and 35, there really isn't room in the narrative for these two women to have these two stories at this time. With no's from both of us for the first two parts of the 129 classic suite, that leaves us with Classic X-Men number 39. Classic X-Men 39 is significant because of its creative team. While Anna Senti has seen her work published on a number of these classic stories, this is the only classic to feature art on the backup by Jim Lee, Jim Lee's Uncanny run along Chris Claremont is considered the second great run after Claremont and Byrne. The Jim Lee run ran from roughly May 89 to sometime in 1991 when Jim Lee would leave with the rest of the Image crew to found Image Comics. In November of 1989, Jim Lee contributed art to Briggs Revenge, a classic X-Men backup story that was previously collected in the X-Men Chris Claremont Jim Lee omnibus series. So I was actually pretty familiar with this story. And I can already tell you,
0: there is no way this thing belongs in the Dark Phoenix saga. I don't see how this fits at all. The story is about Storm. Storm, while more of a major role than the other X-Men, still doesn't do much in the Dark Phoenix saga. She's not this beacon of light where we see the relationship between Jean and Storm be the one to break her free. No, we don't get any of that. Maybe in an alternate universe, sure. But this is about some random mutant named Billy. I have so many problems with this issue. This is, again, a case of people playing with Claremont's toys and not really knowing what to do with them. The characterization for Storm and Wolverine in this classic issue are so off, and they don't they just don't fit and this has nothing to do with the dark phoenix saga at all
1: i like that you pointed out that some of these stories could have been about other major players in the dark phoenix saga for instance the kitty and emma stories we could almost understand their inclusions because those two were huge factors but not only is storm not a huge factor at this point in the series the accompanying cyclops stories who was the one to break gene out of that control who was the one to be there for her and keep her humanity his stories are about his childhood and involve a villain that wasn't introduced yet, as we discussed in episode eighteen. So I don't even know what they were trying to do with some of these. But to that end, this backup story is sort of a trap that the X Men sometimes fall into. An X Man interacts with somebody, and it's sort of this grim, dark, emotional moment where everybody's like, "Oh, uh, the darkness." and the the awkward moment that this leaves off on, where Billy's like, Ah ha ha, I got under her skin. Did you? Because you literally never appear again, you never come up again, and this in no way directly impacted Wolverine and Storm's relationship.
0: And that's why I say that this issue is so off, because This is, like, high school drama, and both Wolverine and Storm are much more mature adults to really let this get to them. Wolverine is not one to hold grudges against people that he likes, and he wouldn't really hold Storm's decision against her. Also, like, to tell the story of this nice guy who thinks he deserves help, and then gets really pissed off when the beautiful woman doesn't help him. And for, like, Storm to be, like, so guilty over this, it's like, no, no! no get over yourself storm because you did nothing wrong you made the right decision get over not getting over yourself storm because that's kind of the
1: problem this story is weird in a team of heavy hitters yes wolverine with the unbreakable bones and the healing factor should be the one to take a hit like that colossus should be the one to take a hit like that if kurt took a hit like that it would probably kill him you would send somebody like wolverine and wolverine understands that's his purpose on the x-men so much of this is a manufactured drama that has nothing to do with the actual narrative going on at this point. In fact, for this story to take place around 129 and not feature scott or gene is sort of artificial and saccharine they are the stars of the dark phoenix saga while at this point they are off with dazzler whose classic stories we will be talking about in a few weeks this one not only do i feel it doesn't sit right with these characters at this point in their canon i do not feel this could possibly be collected with the dark phoenix saga
0: absolutely mediocre at best storytelling wrong characterization wrong everything about this issue you do not stay away Stay far away and be be like Billy's powers and just destroy the issue.
1: From there, we're going to move to the 131 suite, which is classic X-Men number 36 and 40. 36 is the issue connected to 130. So this is the second issue of the Phoenix Saga. Dazzler's just been introduced. Things are getting crazy for Kitty and Emma seems to have the upper hand. And they find time to tell a touching Moira and Banshee story here. It's unbelievable. Banshee gets more dialogue in this short story than he does in whole arcs of Uncanny X-Men. Once again... The creative team is significant here. At this point, Fabian Nicieza was preparing to take on a seven-year or so run on the X titles, which saw him write everything from Excalibur to X-Force to Uncanny X-Men. So Fabian Nicieza at this point, another name
0: closely tied to the X-Men franchise. I actually really liked this story. Here's my only problem with this story, because it's actually a really amazing story. Everything about this issue works for me. Moira struggling with what to do with her dead son. She has so much guilt and remorse over her son being dead dead. But her son was evil and she doesn't know how to feel and she feels like she failed as a mother and as a genetic scientist to help her son live the best life he could. So she's pushing everyone away. She's snapping against people. We see her get angry and push Banshee away who up until this point, every time we see them interact they're very happily in love. It's really great and we see how Banshee's dealing with this where he doesn't know how to help the woman he loves. He wants to support her but she's not letting him in. It's really beautiful writing. My only problem is this doesn't fit in the Dark Phoenix saga. This goes so beautifully right at the end of proteus
1: i agree there's no way this can go with the dark phoenix saga
0: this acknowledges
1: a random page that cuts away to moira in the dark phoenix saga where she says that she's concerned about gene's growing power levels but this belongs as an epilogue to the proteus saga not as an element of the dark phoenix saga i want to take a moment and praise a couple of things in this storytelling number one i love the beefcake they give us of sean working out Woof, thank you. Thank you very much, Mr. Cassidy. Number two, I genuinely love that the end of this issue is that she can't go through with it and changes her mind. They make it very clear, her son's dead. They say that it's an exciting new beginning for her and Sean, not that there's some possibility of Proteus returning. And that's actually a huge relief for me because I hate when they're sort of like, but is it? That's not an ending I enjoy. So that the ending here is, no, they get to be happy because we already knew what came ahead of this. Because this is, again, a story set in the past. Proteus doesn't suddenly resurface in the middle of everything and we needed to see how it happened. Instead, we got to see the psychological development of a woman coping with losing her ex-husband and her son. It's kind of an interesting parallel for a person who discovers that their son is a serial killer. This is not an unrealistic psychological phenomenon, just the possessing and burning through bodies and being allergic to metal part is.
0: I absolutely agree. And I I have to touch on the point you just said. The way the story ended, it ended right having it leave on any form of a cliffhanger doesn't do justice to the story and it's not fair to Moira or Sean. Moira needs to be allowed to process everything and move past. And with no possibility of her son coming back or any form of something like that, I think that's really great because we want we want to see happy stories eventually. We want these characters to be happy and eventually get there. But to leave that note and to have all those emotions be able to come back at some point, I wouldn't think that's fair to a character. I don't think it's fair to Banshee because what is he supposed to do? do? to compete with her dead son. That's not fair to him either. So I think this ended well. This ended the way it should have. It's the only
1: reasonable thing to do to give a character the opportunity to connect psychologically with a loss like that if you're going to put them through a loss like that. We talk about how characters are often killed off to advance another character's story, but oftentimes characters are made to suffer for the sake of having a plot. If you're going to make a character suffer, be willing to do something with it. While this is the first classic that we've been really positive on, we agree it does not get collected here, which takes us over to classic number 40 by Tom Orszakowski. Once again, interesting creative team note here. Tom Orszakowski is the letterer on Uncanny X-Men for greater than 10 years. As a matter of fact, at the time of this publication in late 1989, he was still the letterer on Uncanny X-Men, which he had been since the Dark Phoenix saga. That said, I have no idea how in the hell a guy who worked on the Dark Phoenix saga said this is a story he saw going
0: in the Dark Phoenix saga. Not only that, who at Marvel approved this story? This this story is so bizarre. One again, not that it, nobody can touch the characters that Chris Claremont created, and to say that Chris Claremont writes everyone the best and nobody else can do it, blah 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 blah. But when other people, right now, as the way I'm seeing things, when other people get their hands on Chris's toys, they're not they're not written how they should be they're not written well maybe not written maybe that's not what i should be saying but they're not written how i know them and what i think these characters should be able to do from everything we're giving within the main uncanny run this story like is unfortunately a little ableist i understand what he was trying to do and he was trying to be a good person but the phrase the path to hell is paved with good intentions really rings true here
1: i do not enjoy that this is a story about a character who is either an amputee or born without one of her legs and the story is called fundamental imbalance you should not be titling stories puns about characters disabilities it also plays into this constant trope of nightcrawler meets random people learns i'm just shocked that she wasn't a ghost at the end so nightcrawler convinces this young woman to call what seems like a somewhat abusive home and go back like this is when you have a do not contact list Do not contact your abuser. I don't know what I'm supposed to take from this
0: story, but it isn't anything where I feel fulfilled. I'm just sort of like, oh, okay. Also, something that really rubbed me the wrong way about this issue is this girl doesn't have a name. They don't name her. She doesn't introduce herself. She doesn't introduce herself when she's calling anyone within her personal story. I'm so confused as to what are we supposed to be getting out of this? What is the main takeaway? What is Kurt supposed to be learning outside of people can be happy, homeless, and make a living being con artists? They're trying to. Actually, I have no idea what this story was trying to do, and I can't find any explanation for it. I'm not going to try. I'm not going to excuse the story for anything either. It doesn't make sense. I think this girl is supposed to be a mutant, but that's never addressed, really. I think it's great that Kurt's able to look past her disability and say, hey, if you don't want to do this anymore, I know somebody who can help you do this professionally and you can perform for a much larger audience. But that's more of a Kurt thing where he likes performing for people. Not everyone thinks like that. But also, this doesn't make sense with the continuity of Marvel Team Up number 89, where he tells Amanda that he has abusive time at his circus so why would he be contacting anyone from his circus
1: maybe he remembers a happy time at a different circus maybe he worked for i don't know ultimately this story doesn't add anything to nightcrawler it doesn't add anything to uncanny x-men and it certainly doesn't do anything for the dark phoenix saga i could happily walk away from this story not having lost anything from it really at the end of the day it seems like the 131 suite doesn't belong with dark phoenix saga either although the first classic story does make sense with the proteus saga Absolutely, I agree, and we can, like Morris son, put this to rest. Let's take a look at Uncanny X-Men 137, Classic 43's backup story, Flights of Angels. This is an interesting one. A comment we'd made all throughout Classic was that Claremont very clearly only agreed to do Classic stories as a way to tell more Gene, who he currently wasn't able to use. More interesting than that, he so completely expanded the Gene-Xavier relationship. Knowing that this is one of the last backup stories classic has i have to wonder did claremont run out of stories he really wanted to tell back then ultimately this is not only the end of the dark phoenix saga in the best way possible a very clear epilogue but i do think this one does deserve to be collected with the dark phoenix saga
0: absolutely out of how many issues we've talked about for this episode. This is the only one that truly fits here because it's what happens after. We get Jean figuring out why she's still conscious in some form, why she thinks she's alive. And she meets probably one of the hottest depictions of death I've ever seen. Thank you. He's just this hot lumberjack who's building in the sky. Oh my God, it's great. And I think it's one of the more appropriate stories for where it goes. The writing is great as usual. We get to just reflect with Jean on her time as the Phoenix and what that meant as her as a person and why it went wrong and what happened with it and all these weird, interesting things that we always think about with life of destiny and if this was always meant. It Was this her choice? So many different great things are touched upon this. I think it's one of the best classics we've read. It also has a lot of what I feel becomes definitive Phoenix canon. Number
1: one, we're treated to this really beautiful when's when of Jean growing up and her development of her powers. We see Annie, her friend who died in her arms. We see her use her powers as a young woman become Phoenix. And then we see her sacrifice. We also get a really iconographic image of the raptor and suddenly Jean's in white and she even comments when I was green I was the good phoenix when I was red I was the dark phoenix I wonder what white could mean white phoenix really does come to mean this sense of Jean is in a rebuilding mode she's in a reflective place she's not in this world so it's really fascinating that this bit of canon was established in a classic not in the proper narrative. It is also very important to note that this seems to be the first time Jean is able to handle what really happened on Dabari. For everything in Dark Phoenix Saga about humanity and learning how to cope and deal and heal and repair and all the wonderful stories they try to tell with Dark Phoenix Saga, Jean's reaction to her own actions is really underplayed throughout. This is the first time Jean really Accepts what she's done to Dabari. In that way, this is the first one that really directly connects to the Dark Phoenix saga in a meaningful way.
0: I absolutely agree. I think this actually could have been expanded upon more in 137. Instead of having the montage of everyone deciding if they want to join Jean or not or whatever, because that's kind of important, I actually think those pages could have been better suited to have. Jean reflecting on what she did as the Phoenix and what that meant for her and what she's doing by fighting for herself that could have added to that story so much more because it focuses on the characters that are important and that we need this story does some really great symbolism and as we've talked about in a couple of different issues there's canon that comes from classic that are iconic and referenced to this day so classics aren't all that bad as we make them out to be most of the time but this was just a really great issue to see more depth to Jean because we're not going to see Gene for a very long time. So I think it's great to have this final moments of Jean accepting what she did like she should have and really understanding what it means to be the Phoenix. She didn't fully understand what it meant while she was alive and now she actually has a much better sense of what she's destined and meant to do and why she wanted this. So
1: much of this story is about her reaction to what it has meant to be the Phoenix. She comes to terms with so much of who she is and the story itself is beautiful. I genuinely love the development and growth we get from her here that said this story is not without its frustration the last page of this story frustrates me to no end because inexplicably they choose to give away elements of a story that won't even be introduced for more than a hundred issues and it's another story that claremont came to through changes as the story developed much like dark phoenix saga While I would certainly include this backup classic story, I would very much prefer to remove the final
0: page. Absolutely, I agree. And if you are reading along with us, I highly recommend skipping the last page. So before we talk about Phoenix the Untold Story, I want to share a few
1: other untold stories from Uncanny X-Men and Chris Claremont's Vault. There were other... Alternative endings to the Dark Phoenix saga other than just the one that was ultimately drawn before being scrapped for the now famous ending In the first ending after the destruction of the Dabari solar system It was going to be revealed that the Phoenix force was using Jean's body as a vessel and thus was the true culprit of the mass murders In this ending they would kill just the Dark Phoenix not Jean who had ultimately not been responsible for anyone's murder the second possible ending was going to be that Jean would have been imprisoned forever because of her actions. In that version, Jean would have remained a regular character in the X-Men as the X-Men would have traveled across space to find her. So that was two other possible endings to the Dark Phoenix saga that we did not get.
0: Hearing what the original or the alternate endings were supposed to be is really interesting, and I don't think they actually fit this full narrative. I think what ultimately did happen was probably the best outcome they could have gotten from it. Maybe some tweaks here or there to make it better, but Jean herself not taking responsibility is this weird thing because you're trying to tell me the phoenix is its own entity but there's also times you're telling me that it's not and it's this weird mishmash of continuity that I don't understand what you want me as a reader and a fan to believe so having that doesn't make the most sense to me but then also having Jean be imprisoned that makes sense but having the X-Men spend stories traveling across space to find her doesn't make the most sense to me because I understand you love Jean and you want to protect her and want her to be with you but she also should be paying for her crimes she did still do something no matter if it was in her control or not you know we don't excuse people for blacking out and doing bad things so
1: Jean doesn't get a pass either and it's that inability to distinguish gene from the phoenix that is ultimately why they felt that they had to keep them one entity and they had to be punished together it is interesting though that Jean needed to be punished at all Because if Chris Claremont had told the story he originally intended, Gene would not have become the Dark Phoenix more than likely. Originally, the Hellfire Club were intended to be the organization pitting Mystique against Ms. Marvel. And Rogue and Destiny would have shown up in the pages of Ms. Marvel as well, instead of in the pages of X-Men and later Avengers Annual. So, the Hellfire Club, the original impetus for the Dark Phoenix saga was intended for Ms. Marvel. So in
0: another world, Jean would have never paid the price at all. That's really interesting to hear that a lot of what did happen to Jean wasn't actually originally intended for her. I find that so fascinating and I just think that's really interesting and it really brings a big question of what if that was what happened if Ms. Marvel was the one targeted by the Hellfire Club and turned evil and Jean didn't atone for anything?
1: Yeah, if Ms. Marvel 23 hadn't been the final issue of the series, who knows what would have happened? But that leaves us with just Phoenix the Untold Story left to discuss. Everything about this issue is identical to 137 up until the part where, in the original story, the dialogue states, Majestrix, something has happened. Our instruments are registering off their scales. No, Shara and Kithra, no. In this version, instead, Phoenix does not re-emerge and the panel says, Majestrix, it is over. We are then treated to some giant pink sticks poking the psychic out of Jean, giving her a psychic energy lobotomy. And then Scott kind of acts like anything is Lilandra's fault and then storms off. The end. This was the original
0: end of the Dark Phoenix saga. I would not include this with the
1: Dark Phoenix saga if you want people to like it.
0: No, 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 neither would I. This is bad psychic surgery aside this is so unsatisfying to the culmination of what the dark phoenix saga was it feels like a disjustice to the story and the characters it also feels disrespectful for the fans to just have gene basically get off scot-free yeah she doesn't have powers anymore she's a normal human but that's not much of a punishment now she's just not going to be persecuted as we've said before with favoritism that's a level of favoritism that's far too much and is going to detract from a story
1: in fact what we're saying that there's no real sense of atonement One thirty-eight was originally going to begin with Jean just hanging out by a brook, hanging out, being chill with Scott, hanging out, just being normal, not being dead or in prison or anything. She killed billions of people. It really was important that editorial came in and said this is unacceptable. I don't think this ending would have been as memorable as what we did ultimately get. The story that we got truly told the narrative of a person desperate to cling to their humanity. While this ending does give Jean her humanity back in the truest sense of the words, it does not tell a story about humanity. It instead tells the story of balance. That's it. It's just a sense of balance. Oh, she did something bad, so they took away her powers. I don't feel a conclusive growth
0: from it. I don't either it's just not something I would have wanted the original ending had Jean die hero and that was a major part of it and it's something that as Nico said talks about the part of her humanity would save the universe but with this she doesn't die a hero she's just kind of basically given a slap on the wrist it's like this was your first offense Jean we're just gonna take away your powers and then who knows maybe eventually she would have gotten them back it brings a lot of what if questions of well what happens now what what if gene what if this was the original ending how does this affect the x-men does Jean stay as a mainstay does she just leave does scott leave with her do they start a family
1: well thanks to the uncanny x-men omnibus edition we also have a top bit from page 18 of issue 138 in which Jean just sort of leaves the x-mansion bye guys Logan looks sad in a window. Bye, Gene.
0: Don't kill any more galaxies. Bye. Bye. Everything's cool with us. Bye. That is is—it is so bizarre that that's where this was going. And I would want to, if I was able to delve into the mind of Chris Claremont of where he want to take it after this, I don't actually have a real reason. That is a really heavy trauma to put your X-Men through and then have it end that way. And then Gene just leaving... But it looks like not with Scott. And it's
1: just like, okay. It's one of those situations where I'm really glad that editorial stepped in and said, no, this has to be changed. I won't let this go to print. She killed billions of people. You don't get to play with such big balls of fire and not have anybody get burned. So I do think that the original ending cheapens the story and i honestly would probably not print it i would i would probably try and keep that thing under wraps it is not pages i would want out there i don't think it tells anything necessary
0: and i don't think it improves the story in any meaningful way no it really doesn't it's i agree with you maybe that should have just been kept to themselves of like That's their dark secret. That's Marvel's dark secret of what this was actually supposed to be. To me, like if this was actually what happened, I don't know what the game plan was supposed to be. As Nico said, you can't just do that. You can't just have people walk off scot-free after you killed so many people and then act like nothing happened. You can't rug sweep that. Your rug is burned. You can't sweep under that.
1: A lot of times artists say that they don't want to release some of their unreleased demos or deep cuts because they don't reflect the artist that they want to be known as. I think it's a lot of fun to take a look at the apocrypha of a writer or a run or a title and try and break down what of it could have made things different and what pieces would come together to paint a very different picture. But... With the case of the Dark Phoenix saga, having taken a look at the apocryphal stories in classic X-Men and this original ending, I'm walking away from this saying that I think the Dark Phoenix saga, as it was told, was pretty much the best case scenario. It was a number of threads that came together uniquely. Dazzler's inclusion was editorially mandated. Phoenix dying on the blue side of the moon also editorially mandated. We get a real sense of how little was in claremont and burns hands and in their control so so much of it is a reactionary tale trying to handle the changes that were thrown their way in this out of control one-of-a-kind narrative looking back on the dark phoenix saga i feel like it really is a story of Jean gray trying to keep her humanity in light of everything happening to her it's a sad story and it's a tragic story, but it's beautiful that she chooses to end things on her own terms. I don't believe that this, narr- this narrative started with her on a suicide mission, but the way her destiny changed, she understood what she had to do. In order to become the greatness that she was, to patch the latticework back together of reality inside the Mkron crystal, she had to awaken certain things inside of herself, and that led to coming back a very different person. Jason Wingard's involvement in her life deeply complicated things and was in many ways a fantastic way to harken back to the original stories that defined the X-Men early on when Stan Lee was crafting the tales of the strangest teens of all time. It isn't just fun to read the Dark Phoenix Saga. It was a pleasure to read it with you, Jonah, taking a look back on the Dark Phoenix Saga and its apocrypha on this side of the flame. How do you feel about Jean? Because that's it. Gene is gone for quite a
0: while. You know, I think. If a character was going to die and it being having to be Gene, I think we did her the justice that she deserves as a character, as a person, and as the savior of the universe. I think what originally happened was great. And but what I'm realizing is that just as Nico said, they came up with the best that they could, even though it was a forced ending. Ultimately, I think it makes it the best ending they probably could have came out with it, unless you do something so wild. There's not much else this could have taken where I don't think there would have been a form of backlash i think these issues that they tried to collect afterwards don't hold a candle to what the original dark phoenix saga was but they tried their best and i will give credit where credit is due i think the epilogue of gene talking with death is one of the best so it's been just a pleasure of learning about the story of gene gray of where she started as marvel girl to being the weakest member of the x-men to being the most powerful mutant we have encountered so far and I, it was just a great read. It was beautiful, and it was. And I see why Jean Grey is one of your favorite X-Men and favorite Marvel characters of all time. I'm so glad you brought up Backlash,
1: because I kind of feel like you can't talk about the Dark Phoenix saga without mentioning this one little factoid. There is a very successful comic book writer by the name of Kurt Busiek. He actually wrote in about the death of Jean Grey. His letter was published in uncanny 143 in which he says that he has a complete collection of x-men starting with issue 37 but he will be quitting the title with 138 in light of killing gene gray this guy would go on to win eisner's and write some of the most recognizable comics of the 90s including astro city so you can't make everybody happy can you? jonah until we take one last look at the Dark Phoenix saga, examining Bizarre Adventures 27's Gene story, as well as 138, saying goodbye to the era of the giant size X Men, and launching into the all new uncanny team centered around Kitty, where can everybody find you online?
0: If you like to see me banthing about, or in a character sometimes you see in these titles flipping about, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Jonah Rubino and at Jonah Rubino. Nico, where can people find you? You guys can find me here
1: at Cage Club, making shows like mcu.html, where me and my husband KevO take a look at the Marvel Cinematic Universe, examining it for diversity, inclusion, and consistency. I also make Now and Again with my best friend Chris, where we take a look at the Now That's What I Call Music series in order. If you like what you hear here, you'll probably like the other shows on the network so don't forget to check out the patreon and kick a few dollars toward cage clip to keep the place running you can check me out at my webcomic kid Riot where i make inclusive storytelling for a modern audience and on my instagram nico action that's n-i-c-o-a-c-t-i-o-n all right until we come back for one last flame we'll see ya see ya